Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Awesome. Oh, you guys have such good seats. Awesome. Hey, um, anybody new this morning to our community? Anybody? Oh, my goodness. Well done. Um, normally, we'd have you stand up and ask you for money, but today, I think, because they're, we wouldn't do that. Hey, we do have a 5 o'clock Saturday night service that has a little more room, so unless you really like sitting um, this close to other people, uh, go ahead and keep coming to this if you do, but uh, our Saturday night service is at 5 o'clock, and it's got a couple hundred uh, open seats, um, and they don't have these right here, the, which are the prime seats, so well done. You guys have to stay awake, though, all right? kind of the rule. Now, my name is Mike. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to preach today with my shirt on because too many of the ladies last week said it was distracting with it off, and so I decided I'd better, didn't want to cause anyone to stumble this morning. Um, I want to, and can we just get a couple ground rules? Number one, we're not going to talk football, all right? I do not, I do not want to know the scores. You will not tell me. I, I rebuke the man last night who, after I said this, shouted who won the first playoff game. He is there aren't many things that will send you straight to the bad place, but that's one of them. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then uh, the second thing I want to let you know is uh, if you're around our uh, community for any length of time, you're going to hear something about something called Rooted. And Rooted, we're actually, I just kicked it off over at, uh, in one of the other rooms. Rooted is a 10-week discipleship experience, and it's a really big deal around here. We don't have a lot of stuff that we offer during the week because we want Rooted to be the thing that we do. Um, and, and let me tell you why it's a big deal. Is this, is this building a church? No, it's a movie theater that has been renovated. Is, uh, is this program a church? No. What is a church? Exactly. The church is the people of God gathered, and then the people of God scattered as they go throughout the world. We've, we fundamentally believe church is not a spectator sport, that, 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 and, and much in the American church makes it seem that way, right? We have professionals on a stage, and you come, and you watch, and if it's good, you tip, and if it's not, you leave, and you go find another spot, and you know, it's like, well, no, that's not exactly what Jesus died to birth into the world, right? There's something a bit more epic we're to be a part of. And uh, so what we're interested in is not having a whole bunch of people show up for the sake of a whole bunch of people showing up. We're interested in in seeing people become invested participants in our church community. And what that looks like is the understanding that first and foremost, every disciple of Jesus is a son or daughter and their identity is rooted there. But they also are priests and ministers and ambassadors in their real lives outside of this place. Is this, does ministry happen just here? Nope, ministry happens out there. Are we the only ministers who sit on this stage? Nope, you're the ministers too. And so Rooted is designed to actually wake us up to what that kind of life looks like. And I'm telling you about it because we launched Wednesday night, a Wednesday night group. Uh, several groups, actually. We have room for about 50 more, 75 more people. And I want to encourage you, if you're considering this uh, to be your church home, making it your church home looks like going through Rooted, because that's all we do. So uh, you can sign up on the, uh, on the patio as we go. Now, did anything big happen this week uh, that uh, you, you can give God credit for? I mean, just real quick, we don't do this often, there's a lot of folks, but anything big happened this week? In like two words or three words, something big that like, God gets credit for. No. What? 
You got a new job. Hallelujah for new jobs. All right. What is it? Same company, transfer away, of a hard bo- uh, transfer away from a hard boss. Nice. It was, okay, sweet. I like that. I'm looking for a distributor for this calendar I've been working on. And so let me know if you... Anything else? What other big stuff? Yes, young lady. You read a passage you've read before, and this time it made sense. Isn't that amazing? The Bible is one of those crazy things. It's like anybody can pick it up and benefit, even if you don't know exactly Greek or Hebrew or theology or whatever. But then you can spend your whole life uh, investing in it and always come up with new stuff. That's great. Anything else? Jesus, thank you for this man's musculature. All right, I'm glad that happened. That's awesome. It is a big deal to you. I I haven't had that happen in a while. Um, So I'm jealous. As he's eating a banana. Nice. Just because he's, you know. Yes. Well, great. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Spartan applause over there. These people, I don't think, heard a thing you said, but it was good. That's fantastic. Anything else? A couple more. Yes, young lady? Yeah, the scout from Arizona, right? The congresswoman. That's awesome. Now, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Miracles don't happen. This is the age of science. I'm sorry. God, God evidently... Sarcasm is what that is. That's absolutely stunning what's happening to her. Yes, what? Yes, sir. Thank you for representing the dudes. Now, this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of thing we should be saying. Did you hear this, man? Well, I'm glad God spoke. It's good material we're working with up here. Thank you. All right, one last one that's not about me. Yes. Victory over a bad habit because you learned how to trust. Well, that's fantastic. I love that. All right. It's almost like God is real. I mean, just shocking. Hey, um, uh, we want to welcome you, particularly if you're new. We've been in the book of Matthew, and we will be in the book of Matthew for a while. So let's go there. This morning, Jesus of Nazareth shows up in the most unexpected of ways. It's what we celebrate at Christmas Uh, And the first two chapters deal with his birth and flight into Egypt and from Egypt and back from Egypt. And then we get into chapter 3, where 25 years go by and his cousin John the Baptist is baptizing people, uh, calling the nation of Israel to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. Jesus shows up, is baptized by John to validate and fulfill John's ministry He's tempted in the wilderness, which was last week's message, which according to that gentleman was awesome. And, um, and, and, uh, and then uh, he begins his public ministry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at one verse in chapter 4 that will set up the first part of what we'll look at in chapter 5. Now, what you have to know about Matthew is Matthew is Jewish, and he's writing to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. 
Because we're none of those things, right, uh, for most of us, we, there's some background that always has to come into play for us to really understand what's going on. Matthew's very interested in showing the connections between Jesus and Israel and Jesus and Moses. And so uh, the Torah is what is called the, the first five books of the Bible. First five books, we call it the, Pen- the Pentateuch, um, but the Jews call it the Torah, the teaching. And for them, it was the central revelation of God to them. It was the whole basis of their collective life together. Matthew organizes his material around five long discourses of Jesus. And there's some, some scholars think there's a connection there, that Jesus is kind of offering a new Torah uh, for the community of Israel. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at the most famous of these discourses, something called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the title of it because Jesus is on a mountainside when he gives it. But the passage we're going to look at is horribly misunderstood. And so we need to begin in chapter 4 of Matthew. We'll start in verse 17. Now, if anyone ever asks you, what was it that Jesus preached? Most American Christians would say, well, he preached that he would die on the cross so that we could have forgiveness. And certainly, that is a huge part of what he did. But when Jesus was here, this this was the summary statement of all that he taught. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, as we've talked about, the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's very Jewish way of saying the kingdom of God, which is how Mark and Luke put it, or John says eternal life. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, eternal life, all the same meaning, just different words of saying the same thing. And it's the idea, not that you and I get to heaven, but that heaven is coming here. That there is the reign and rule of God in the heavens that's now invading human history. And that, if you don't understand that, there's a lot more to say. And we don't have time to look at all the ins and outs of this. But the Jewish idea was that God would become king over the whole world. And they yearned for something called the kingdom of God to be manifest on earth. So that God's rule would be directly manifest over all the earth. Not just Israel, but the whole thing. So Jesus will tell his disciples, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but that is an extension of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom coming means people are doing his will on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus is announcing, repent, which means go the opposite direction in your life, because the kingdom of heaven is near, what he's saying is the way that God rules the heavens has now drawn near in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So you should reconsider the way that you're living your whole life in light of that fact. Now, I know that hardly clears anything up, but the relevant portion for us is that Jesus, this is the message of Jesus, that God's governance, his rule and his reign is near now in Jesus before it manifested itself through the the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the temple system of Judaism. And now Jesus is saying, in me, everything that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament pointed to, is now coming to fulfillment in your very midst. And then Jesus is going to begin to give flavor to what that looks like. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And thus begins a section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And what I want to do is I want to read them, but because these are very commonly misunderstood, I want to then do some background to make them 
uh, makes sense a little bit for what Jesus is doing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted, each end with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, present tense. This is a rhetorical device. I know you're fascinated to know. It's a rhetorical device called an inclusio, which is a very Hebrew way of bracketing something by having a, a, some, the first thing and the last thing say the same thing, and then, and then it sandwiches a, a bunch of material that says something a little different in the middle. And in this case, Jesus is saying the blessedness is present tense in the first and last one, but those bracket a bunch of future promises, right? So the first one is theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then the next one is future tense, they will be comforted. Make sense? So this kingdom that Jesus is talking about brings blessing now, but it also brings blessing in the future. And much of Jesus' teaching has to do with, I'm coming now and inaugurating this thing, but I'm going to come back and complete it. And what happens in the meantime? We live in the meantime between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, he ends by saying, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, say falsely all kinds of things uh, about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Now, what is the most natural way to understand what we just read? If you want to be blessed, what do you have to do? Be poor in spirit and be meek and mourn and be peacemakers and be pure in heart, right? And if you want to be blessed, those, that's the list of things you've got to do to be blessed. Have you heard it or understood it this way? Okay, brothers and sisters, let's be clear. I know we don't know each other, especially if you're new to our community. This is kind of like a blind date. And I just want to, want to let you know a couple of expectations I have. Even though we're in movie theater seats... And even though everything in us says, just watch, would you just show me you're alive? Okay, so, so sometimes if I say, hey, have you ever heard it this way? Just give me something. And it, you fake it, pretend, I don't care, just something. Okay, have you ever heard it this way? Yes, yes we have. And so very often, especially, I mean, people that are especially type A personalities read this and go, what, what does this mean? So I've got to be meek to be blessed, and I've got to mourn to be blessed, and I've got to be persecuted to be blessed. The natural way to read the Beatitudes is turning them into laws. If, if you want to be blessed, then you must be poor in spirit or mourning or whatever. I want you to know that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is conveying here. Some of the things listed are good things we're supposed to be, but that's not his point here. His point is far more profound than that. Now, to help illustrate this, I'm going to fire up some PowerPoint. This is, I don't know if you have discovered this thing. This is amazing because you can put things on the screen. It's just phenomenal. So I spent a lot of time working on this this week. Now, for the next five minutes are going to be painful. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to go, this was painful. I'm going to say, I told you it was painful. You're going to say, you were right. I'm going to say, yes, I know. And then we'll move on to relevance. All right. 
So if I lose you, it's just fine. Fire it up, if you would. Slide number one. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) To understand the Beatitudes, we have to understand the first word, blessed. Some people translate blessed happy. Happy is the person who. That is such a lame translation. You need to know that. This has nothing to do with happiness. Blessed has nothing to do with how you feel or how your circumstances are. Blessed has to do with whether or not you're an object of divine favor, regardless of how you feel. There are two different words for blessed in the Bible. They each have a Greek and a Hebrew equivalent. The first word for blessed is a word that we translate eulogize or eulogy. It's, it's to call down blessing on somebody. It's to ask God to bless. So somebody sneezes and I say, bless you. That's the first sense of the word. Or if I ask God to bless you, this is the first sense I'm meaning. It's asking God to do something for you. Make sense? Oh, I love it. Come on, 11. Come on. Now, I mean, the Saturday night folks, they're not that great. The Sunday, mo- the Sunday early morning folks, they're asleep. You folks, I have such high expectations for this service. Because really, this defines how the rest of my week will go from this time on. The second word for blessed is the word that's used here, and stick with me. It has nothing to do with wanting God or wishing that God would do something. Notice, this word for blessed recognizes an existing state of favor or good fortune that's already present. In other words, instead of Jesus saying, if you want to do this, you will be blessed, he's flipping that around and saying, these kinds of people are blessed already. He's not looking at a bunch of people who aren't poor in spirit and saying, hey, be poor in spirit and then you'll be blessed. Instead, he's looking at people who are poor in spirit, and he's announcing that they are objects of divine favor. And the reason that is such a big deal is the phrase poor in spirit means spiritually bankrupt, spiritual zeros. You don't even have the virtue to know you're a spiritual idiot. You just are one. This isn't something you want to be. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, contrary to all first century definition, The blessed ones aren't the spiritually proud ones. They're the spiritually humble ones. He's not looking around and saying, hey, God, would you bless the people who are poor in spirit? That's the first sense of the word. Instead, he's saying, hey, good news for those of you poor in spirit. You are already objects of divine favor. Do you see the difference? Mm, Partially. Next. Flip it. Thank you for that strong absolutely. And you look very handsome. (laughs) Make sure you get a protein shake later. (laughs) Now, the special feature of this word blessing in the New Testament is that it refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which accrues to the person from their sharing in the salvation of the kingdom. Jesus' point isn't, be these things and then I'll bless you. His point is, because the kingdom has drawn near, even these people find blessing. It's totally contradictory. In the first century, the people who were blessed were rich men who were Jewish and religiously clean. 
Those were the blessed ones. You have to understand, that's like 3% of the population in Israel at the time. Everybody else was poor. Everybody else was excluded. Everybody else was common and average and ordinary. You had folks that were disabled. You had folks that were meek and they weren't grabbing a hold of power. They were totally powerless. You had people who simply mourned because the Romans occupied Israel and they yearned for the time that God would come and make everything right. There were those that were pure in heart who couldn't jump through all the religious hoops, but they wanted God more than anything else. And what Jesus is saying is contrary to the rich Jewish men who were religiously elite and clean, the kingdom has come and blessing is now spoken over people for whom have they, the, the folks that, that have no other hope besides God himself. Like, what you need to see from these is that this is shocking. Nobody would have said these folks were blessed. Nobody. And so Jesus, and if, if you want to go a level deeper, each of these people, the poor in spirit, it's a reference to Isaiah 61. Uh, the mourning uh, is a reference to Isaiah 61. The meek is a reference to Psalm 37. I mean, all of this... He's not just pulling random categories out. The thing that unifies this whole collection of people is that they yearn for God. And they yearn for his kingdom to come and put everything right again. And you know what Jesus is saying? In me, it's beginning. That's what these are. Contrary to the religiously proud, to the religiously elite, to the economically advantaged, to the, I mean, we have records of Jewish rabbis who would walk around every morning and say, thank God that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a Gentile. A Gentile's a way of saying you're not Jewish. Everybody thought, rich, men, Jewish, elite, those were the blessed ones. And Jesus comes and looks at this motley collection of humanity and pronounces God's divine favor on groups that thought that there was no favor for them. Are you with me on this? Do you see how this changes how you read these? Some of these you should embody, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, we should be peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. But some of these you shouldn't seek to embody, right? You don't go looking for persecution. Now, persecution is an interesting measure for whether or not you're actually standing for the things of Jesus or not. But he's not going out and saying, hey, only godly people are persecuted. Or mourning. He's not saying, make sure you're a mourner because then you experience God's blessing. He's talking to people who are already mourning and saying, shockingly, God's blessing over your life doesn't rest upon whether or not your life fits together the way that you want it. And the longing that all of these people had for God to come and put everything back together again that will be satisfied. That's the, that, that is the total shock of this thing. So the Beatitudes need to be understood two ways. Are you tracking with so far what we're talking about? <sighs> Blessed are those who are responsive. <laughs> the one way we need to understand these, all right, there's two ways. The first way, is that this is the most dramatic and revolutionary reversal and invitation of God's divine favor. That, I mean, you, it's hard for us to hear these the way that Jesus' audience would have heard them. 
immediately after this list, Jesus has to say, hey, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Because the reason people would think that is this was so upside down. These weren't the blessed groups of people. So what Jesus is saying is everybody who's longed for the world to be different, everybody who's longed for, for God to invade and make everything right, it's beginning right here. And because of your closeness to my kingdom, you're blessed regardless of who you are. The misfits, the outcasts, the screw-ups, the people that can't seem to get it together, the people who are so economically disadvantaged that the religious leaders just say, well, it's your own fault because of your own sin, to the oppressed, to those that have been betrayed when they've shown mercy, to those that are way too compassionate. I mean, God just comes and He says, because my kingdom is here, there is so much room for people just like you. And everything you long for will come to pass. Your hope isn't in vain. That's huge. That's why this is such good news. But the Beatitudes function in another way because they prophetically challenge those of us who define blessedness differently. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a couple stories that show this train of thought. Luke 18. We'll start in verse 1. Goodbye, young one. Potty break? Yeah. She didn't want to go in the children's church, but 20 minutes of me is enough to make her excited for children's church. Can you blame her? I can't blame her. That is awesome. That is awesome. She didn't want to go at first, but after listening to you, she's in. Oh, that's so good. These junior high kids down here going, yeah, we can relate. We're starting a junior high ministry, don't worry. And you know what else we're thinking of doing? I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know if you guys care, but we're going to try to, we're going to try to tear down this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Because there's another movie theater over there that just kind of sits over there. And maybe we could bring them together and maybe you don't have to sit on top of each other. It'd be glorious. Now, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Now, I love these dudes. Um, if, you, if you ever think that Jesus couldn't use you, just read what colossal screw-ups these guys are that Jesus used in the first century. They argue about who, which of them is the greatest. Jesus is constantly saying, you know, he rebukes them for not being, you know, of, of having little faith. I mean, and not understanding him. I mean, it's pretty inviting to those of us who are like that too. And so they're, they're asking, Jesus keeps talking about this glorious kingdom. And they're like, okay, well, who's the greatest? Now, the American church has this demonic impulse to do the very same thing. So if you, are, if you know church culture at all, and it's awful, it's like, who are the 50 greatest churches and the 25 biggest pastors? And the, it's, it's so not of the kingdom, it's just awful. So we ask the very same question, hey, who's the greatest? And look at what Jesus does. He called a little child. Now, stop right there. If you've been in church, this is where all of your churchiness gets in the way. Because you all know, right, you've got to be like a little kid to get in. What you don't know 
is that nobody in the first century would have thought that was a good thing. In the first century, only one out of two of your kids would make it into adulthood. And the only reason, the kids, all the kids were was like premature adults. They had no value until they could work. So if you owned a fishing business, your kids did nothing except absorb resources until they could fish. Right? That was their sole job. Now you had them because that was the commandment was to fill the earth. You had them to perpetuate the Jewish line in the hope the Messiah would come. But they, not like our culture that worships youth culture, they were very clear. These, they're kind of a pain. We need them. And yes, of course you love them, but you didn't, you didn't like hallmark them and treasure them and cherish them the way that we did. And so for Jesus, in answer to the question, who's the greatest in your kingdom? And, and the, the phrase, the little, uh, he pulls a little child, that doesn't mean like a 10-year-old. That means like a toddler. Okay? A snotty, rebellious two-year-old. I happen to have one. And he pulls them, and then notice what he says. So he pulls a two-year-old, and he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter my kingdom. Whoever takes a humble place becoming like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to understand how ridiculous that would have been. He wasn't just saying, hey, the kids are in. But he's saying, the kids are your role models. If you want to know what greatness looks like in my kingdom, embody embody a toddler. Would that have been slightly offensive? Absolutely. Now, Jesus says a very similar thing in chapter 19. Flip over there. I don't know if this will come as a shock, but our, like the chapter numbers and the verse numbers weren't in there originally. Okay, I just want you to know that. They were added later. So there's nothing sacred about how these passages are split up. And one of the things that Americans do that are, it's very damaging to reading the Bible is we think that you can just read a chapter and what you've got is a full unit of thought. You don't. Very often, I mean, there are whole chunks you've got to excerpt. And what Matthew does here is he sandwiches two stories together that we don't often tell together because together they make a very profound point rather than what they would say separately if you abstracted them from each other. So he tells one, uh, chapter 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But what did the disciples do? Rebuked them. Don't waste the rabbi's time with children for crying out loud. We don't even know how many will make it. You know, just, they're nothing. They're not anything. They're worthless. Just, and kids, you need to know, Uncle Mike doesn't feel that way about you. Okay? (laughs) We're glad you're here and we have a children's ministry that you would like a lot more than this. But that was the view. So it was perfectly acceptable culturally for the disciples to go get these kids away from Jesus. Jesus says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. Now, we usually read that story and think it's done. Because in my English Bible, it's like, here's a paragraph break and a new subject heading. No, this is the same deal. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and said, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a very Jewish debate Jesus is going to enter into. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Now this is, this is a Jewish debate. Don't read like, okay, so I've got to keep the commandments to enter eternal life. This is something different that's going on here. 
Jesus replies, you shall not murder, not commit adultery, you shall not steal, not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor. Now he leaves one out. Do not covet, which turns out to be this dude's issue. It's like Jesus was setting a guy up or something. The man says, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, now perfect doesn't mean morally. The word is telos, and it has to do with fulfilling that for which you were created. Okay, so if you want to fulfill what you were created for, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, who is this dude? He is the personification of blessedness in the first century. Is he man? Is he rich? Is he Jewish? And is he righteous ceremonially and part of the religious elite? Absolutely he is. He is the personification of blessing. And you have to understand, Jesus has just blessed a toddler and said he or she in the kingdom is great. and You've got to be just like that. Then here comes the personification of blessedness in the first century. And Jesus says, you've got some remedial work you've got to do first. It's not that you're out because riches keep you out. It's that because you're tempted to trust in them rather than trust in me. Poor people don't worry about trusting in riches. Now, they may live under the lie that riches would solve the problems. That's a different idolatry. But poor people are much more likely to trust God because it's all they got. So Jesus begins to say, I tell you, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. It's hard. I tell you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. Now, this is the point of the story. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who can be saved? If that dude isn't in. I mean, he's the guy. It would be like me saying, hey, just so you know, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham missed it completely. And we would all say, if they're not in, who can be in, right? They're like our best examples. This is what Jesus is doing. He's just said to a toddler, hey, bring the kingdom belongs to folks just like this. And then here comes the dude that exactly embodies who was blessed in first century Judaism. And Jesus says, yeah, you've got some work to do. You've got to let go of your riches before you can come in. And the man walks away. And Jesus says, it's really hard for rich people to come in. Not because their riches somehow preclude them, but simply because they find it easier to trust money than me. And then they go, if rich people can't get in, who can get in? What was the cultural assumption? Rich people were blessed. Jesus flips everything upside down. So the first use of the Beatitudes is to the brokenhearted, to the screw-ups, the misfits, the outcasts. The kingdom has come near and find blessing in it. Everybody that yearns for the things of God will find satisfaction in my kingdom. But the second use of the Beatitudes is they confront us with an upside-down kingdom so that what is great in the kingdom is what is not great in the world's eyes, and what is not great in the kingdom is what is great in the world's eyes, right? It confronts us with who we think is really blessed. Fire up PowerPoint slide number four. A lot of time and prayer went into this one. 
So Jesus is announcing that the poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, you missed the best part, bro. You missed the best part. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm proud. Is that your wife? Your girlfriend. I'm glad I asked and didn't make that assumption. Okay, I'm proud that you would escort the little girl. That you would do it. Because I've seen dudes hand the kids off to the wives or the girlfriends and say, you do it. And I'm glad, I'm glad you modeled servant-heartedness for this entire crew. But you missed the best part. Now, oh, they're clapping for you. How long have you been dating? Two years? Why? Is dating more going to solve anything? You've been dating for three years, for crying out loud. Brothers and sisters, I am licensed to do weddings in the state of California. This... We have witnesses. Three years. Commit to her for crying out loud. Let's go. All right, what are we talking about? <laughs> he will never get up again in the middle of a church service. I've scarred him for life. I'm so sorry. Uh, all right, so Jesus is announcing blessing on the left-handed column kind of folks, right? Not that you've got to be that I'm going to answer it next time. He can't talk. He's listening to a sermon. All right. Focus. How many of you have ever seen the movie Up? Okay, remember the dog, whenever you hear squirrel, right? The dog would squirrel. My wife says I'm very similar uh, to that. So Jesus is pronouncing blessing on all these folks that you wouldn't normally associate with blessing, right? So greatness in the kingdom looks so upside down to what greatness in the world looks like, right? Because, I mean, here's who I think is great. Self-confident, competent, self-reliant, able to take care of themselves, the pleasure-seeking, the hedonistic, the beautiful folks. I mean, nobody puts like drug addicts on the cover of People magazine and says, hey, I mean, it's, all, it's always like the celebrities who we ideal, uh, idealize, 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 whatever. The proud, the powerful, the important, the satisfied, the well-adjusted, the practical, this is the way the world works kind of people. The self-righteous, judgmental, sophisticated, double-minded, competitive, aggressive, popular, reputable, and everybody thinks well of you kind of people. Those are the blessed people in our world. And the Beatitudes confront those of us who've entered into the kingdom of Jesus with an entirely different definition and understanding of greatness. When Jesus was walking around pointing to little kids, he's saying the left-hand column is more important than the right one in God's sight. Now that doesn't mean we've got to go and work hard to be left-handed or left-hand column kind of people because then we'll experience the blessing. No, no, no. What he's saying is God's blessing is independent of how your life circumstances are going. That you can find yourself poor in spirit or mourning. 
you can find yourself pure in heart or hungering for righteousness and know that all that you long for will not be in vain and that God's kingdom has drawn near. Now, brothers and sisters, this is how this works for me. Uh, some of you have heard us talk about our little boy before. Uh, this will be review. We have uh, three children, the youngest of which, his name is Seth, he has Down syndrome. We found out three months before he was born that he had Down syndrome. And um, we were also informed 92% of people choose to abort their child at that point. We obviously did not, but there was some grieving that went on in our hearts. I wish I were so godly I could just tell you, you know, we were just like, yes. This was not the family we'd kind of designed in our minds to have. And I pictured his life going forward and about how he'd be made fun of and called retarded and how he wouldn't experience this or that and, you know, that grocery bagging would be like the best thing he could ever aspire to. And I just had all of this stuff I was feeling. And it's all right-hand column stuff, right? Because what's great in the world Well, great in the world are the self-sufficient ones, not the disabled ones. Great in the world are the ones that can take care of themselves and the ones that can achieve glory and honor and the ones, and all of a sudden, every time I pick up, he's two years old now, every time I pick him up, I'm confronted with an entirely different understanding of what blessedness is. There was a family who had a a child with Down syndrome we, we told uh, the church we were at about this, and there was a family that came up with a little four-year-old boy who had Down syndrome, and they just said, we're so happy for you. They were saying, blessed are you who have a child with Down syndrome. Now, did I believe that? Nope. Why? Because I bought into the right column. Greatness is that, and if you can't have that, Well, then you're not blessed. And every time we hold this drooling, slobbery, cute, smoochable mess, he confronts me. Because am I blessed with him? Am I? Do you really believe that? If you found out you were having a child with Down syndrome, would you believe you were blessed? Depends. Some of us would. Some of us wouldn't. But I appreciate the honesty. I didn't. But are we? Because in the upside down kingdom, blessings come in surprising packages. In the upside down kingdom, what the world would declare a curse because of the nearness of God's kingdom, can turn out to be a blessing. Is he blessed? I think he is. Is because he's worthy of blessing? It's because of the nearness of God's kingdom. And in the upside-down kingdom inaugurated by Jesus, birth defects are not indicators of blessing or cursing. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, unemployment is not an indicator of blessing or cursing. 
in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, a diagnosis is not an indicator of blessing or cursing. You have to understand what Jesus of Nazareth has done. He has made God's blessing available and independent of our human circumstance. But for you and me, we make God's blessing entirely dependent upon how our life is going. I'm blessed when I get a raise. I'm blessed when I'm healthy. I'm blessed when everybody's getting along. And certainly, those are part of God's blessing. But is it possible to be blessed when you're hurting? To be blessed when you're sorrowful? To be blessed when you've been betrayed? To be blessed when relationships aren't what you'd want them to be? To be blessed when you're unemployed? To be blessed when you're diagnosed? To be blessed when you're jealous? To be blessed when you're angry? Is it possible to be blessed because of the nearness of God's kingdom to us in ways that entirely transcend how my life is going at that moment. The Beatitudes open up the possibility that what is considered cursing or bad fortune in the world's eyes can be blessing and good fortune in God's eyes. And brothers and sisters, we dare not trust just the circumstances of our life to determine whether or not God is still with us. Because what Jesus opens up is the idea that all of those who hunger and thirst, all of those who trust, all of those who work, all of those who strive and fail, all of those who are not at home in this place and yearn for God to come and make it right, that Hope is not in vain. I mean, that's awesome. So this morning, let's do this. Would you close your eyes? And we close our eyes um, because I do not want the sisters distracted by, uh, by looking at me during this, this few moments. Squirrel. <laughs> I imagine there are a few of us for whom this really rings true. And a few of us for whom this is utterly needed. That you're sitting in a place and you're wondering if his favor has left the building, has left your life. You've bought into the world's definition of what it is to be blessed and you sit mourning and grieving and disappointed and hurt. And for you to be confronted with the possibility that God's blessing is found precisely in those circumstances is just a radical thought requiring supernatural intervention to really believe. And what I'd like to do this morning, if it's all right, is I want to pray for those of you who find yourself in that place. You're here, and the very easy read on your life, at least according to you, is that blessing is found elsewhere. If I just got a job, if I just got healed, if I just got more money, if I just did this or this happened, and certainly those things would be great. But maybe for you, blessing needs to be redefined this morning. And what I want to do is, if that's you, I just want to ask you to do something very, very courageous. We do this every now and again here. 
and I just want you to identify yourself by standing up where you are. And then some folks right around you are going to gather around you and just pray. They're not going to pray to fix you, or they're not going to pray that you repent of anything or anything like that. But they're just going to give voice to what we would want for you, that this kingdom of Jesus has drawn near and that blessing doesn't stand somewhere else. It's just right in the middle of your life because of him, not because of you. And that the hope you have that things will be different someday, that hope isn't in vain. And uh, we're not going to embarrass you or do anything like that. But in a crew like this, we just, we just want to spend some time being family together. So if that's you this morning, would you just stand up right where you are? Thank you for being so honest, you guys. I know it's a hard thing. And all you're saying is, I need to be reminded of what blessing looks like according to the kingdom of Jesus. Thanks for being honest. I'm going to give it a couple more moments just because I, I'm sure there are a few more of us. You guys are the early adopters. Other hearts are beating fast and wrestling. Nope, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Anybody else? And what we're going to do is, um, for those of you that are seated, we don't look at these people standing and make any judgments upon them. Because in some ways they're just more honest than where we're at, or more in touch with brokenness than where we're at. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.